Well, good morning. Happy Super Bowl Sunday. Happy Groundhog Day. Happy, what would you call it, Palindrome Sunday? 0202-2020. Well, that's kind of cool. Most importantly, Happy Lord's Day. Every Sunday morning is meant to be a little Easter, a celebration of the joy that God brings into our life, and we celebrate that together as a congregation. So uh, that's really what we're all about today, in spite of all those other fun things. I do understand that the, uh, the groundhog did not see a shadow, so we do have an early spring, which is fine with me. The older I get, the less I tolerate cold temperatures. I, it's, you know, it's one of those things. <laughs> if you were to uh, stop people on the street and ask them to complete this sentence, for me to live is... Oh, not too fast. What do you think people would say? And you would undoubtedly get a variety of answers depending on who you're asking and uh, that person's particular stage in life. Many people, if uh, they were honest, would say, for me, uh, life is about making money. I want to be rich. I want to be financially secure in life. And this actually is the most common answer given by young people who are just starting out in life. That's what they want to do. In a recent study that was actually carried out by San Diego State University, first-year college students were asked about their personal goals and their values. And being rich turned out to be their top goal, the number one goal. In fact, 74% of the students listed that as their top goal, 74%. Actually, that's been true of young people since 1989. Meanwhile, developing a meaningful philosophy of life has declined in importance, with only 44% of students listing it as among their top goals. Others would answer this, uh, this sentence by saying, For me, to live is my career. These are people who just love their work. They love what they do. They practically run to work. And the danger, of course, is that they love it so much that they become workaholics. But they feel like they're accomplishing something worthwhile. They enjoy the people they work with. My, my career makes life worth living. For me to live is work. And then there are those who would answer, for me to live is to have fun, to have pleasure. They'll say, work schmirk. I work only so that I have the money to do what I want to do the rest of my life, and I want to have fun. I want to go on all these exotic adventures in life. I'm going to live to the full. So I'll tolerate work. So, you know, life is about having pleasure. Nope, take away my pleasure, no life. In ancient days, in the days of the Apostle Paul, there was a philosophy known as Epicureanism. And Epicureans believed that since the gods were confined to their particular realm and weren't concerned about what human beings did or didn't do, 
that human beings were free to, to please themselves and that the highest goal in life was to seek pleasure. Pleasure was the highest good. Uh, there was a lot actually to that philosophy. I don't want to give that philosophy you know, an unfair uh, presentation here. <laughs> But their philosophy has come down to us as eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. We still actually have a, a version of, a, of Epicureanism today. And you know that word Epicurean, it's come down in our popular vocabulary. I looked it up according to Wikipedia. In modern popular usage, an Epicurean is a connoisseur of the arts of life and the refinements of sensual pleasures. Epicureanism implies a love or knowledgeable enjoyment, especially of good food and drink. Epicureanism is pretty big nowadays. Have you noticed all the cooking shows on TV? Some folks eat to live and others live to eat. I kind of resemble that remark that, you know, that uh, I, I love to eat. <laughs> Do we have any foodies here? Do we have any? So many in our day say, say, for me to live is pleasure. If you ask a sports fanatic or an athlete or a coach to fill in the blank, for me, they might say, for me to live is football. It's all about winning the Super Bowl, baby. Ask a musician, and they may say with piano playing, Schroeder of Peanuts cartoon fame. For me, to live is Beethoven. Beethoven, Beethoven, that's my life. And then Lucy will say, good grief. And still others fill in the blank saying, for me to live is to love my spouse, my children, my grandchildren. Money, career, pleasure, family, all good things as far as they go. But we can love them too much. And actually, that's so much of the heartache of life. It's not always the, you know, the bad things that we do. It's the good things that we love too much that gets in our, our way, in our relationship with God, and can prevent our flourishing as human beings. Here's the question. Are all these good and wonderful things I've just mentioned, are they sufficient to stand as the very foundation of our life? Will these things keep us secure when the harsh winds of life begin to blow and the ground begins to shift beneath our feet? Will the house of our life continue to stand as though built upon the rock, or will they give way under sinking sand, on sinking sand? We collapse like a house of cards. When tragedies and, and troubles come to us, take away what makes our life worth living, and we fall apart. If having a career and making money makes life worth living, then what happens when you lose your career? What happens when you retire? 
What happens if your investment portfolio takes a huge hit? What if the stock market crashes tomorrow? Many people committed suicide during the stock market crash of 1929. Now, losing your life savings is a huge deal. It's a big deal. It's a tragi tragedy. But does that make life not worth living? There are a lot of people who live for their family, their children, and their grandchildren, their spouse, or their friends. But what are you going to do when they die, to put it bluntly? What are you going to do when your life is lying there in a casket? The truth is, all these things that we say that we live for are not able to sustain us when life caves in. They will not save us. They can become idols, and idols always disappoint. They never deliver the goods. They never deliver on their promises. Now, not only do these things not, not only do these things we say we live for fail to hold us up in times of adversity and tragedy, but they ultimately fail to deliver in meeting our need, our innate need for satisfaction and fulfillment in life. Because after a while, as we live our lives, we discover that these things that we've been giving our lives to begin to feel a bit shallow. That is, they don't satisfy our hearts. They don't bring us the meaning and the purpose and the significance that we crave. And lots of folks, you know, they, they reach the pinnacle of success. And they may have acquired all the symbols of that success, you know, the big house and the luxury car, the vacation home, you name it, only to feel as though something is still missing. They realize that what they really need is not more success, but they need significance. They reach the top of the ladder of success, only discover that the ladder's been leaning on the wrong wall. Hence what happens so often in life, you have a midlife crisis, right? This is when it hits. Hmm, there's got to be more to life than this. The writer of Ecclesiastes was suffering through just such a crisis because nothing seemed to feed his inner craving for meaning and purpose and significance. Reading from the book of Ecclesiastes, the first chapter, the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all of their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they will return again. All things are wearisome. More than one can say, the eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear is, is full of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Are we depressed yet? So if you read the, the first part of the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, you know, it talks about how he's, he searched for meaning for life's purpose in his work and toil and labor. He gives himself to a variety of occupations, but still it wouldn't satisfy. So I hated life, he said, 
Because the work that's done under the sun was grievous to me, all of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. You knew that there had to be more to life than nine to five, you know, and financial transactions and committee meetings and sales pitches and promotions and raises. Work is important, but it can't be the most important thing in life, the thing that gives life its ultimate meaning. Then the writer of Ecclesiastes also looked for the meaning of life and pleasure. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired, he said. I refused my heart no pleasure. And he gives us the lowdown of a few of his pursuits. He tried to cheer himself up with laughter and with wine. He built fancy homes for himself. He amassed riches. He hired singers and entertainers. He acquired a harem. But to his dismay, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Meaningless, utterly meaningless, he said. Everything is meaningless. So says a writer from the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes. But now listen to another biblical voice. Because here's a man who also searched for the meaning and purpose in life, only he claimed to have discovered it. One crisp line says it all in his letter to the Philippians, For me to live is Christ. There it is, the key to life's meaning and purpose, says Paul, the A to Z, the Alpha and the Omega, the end of existence, the one in whom he lives and moves and has his being, the God revealed in Jesus Christ. He alone fills the emptiness of the human heart. He alone makes life worthwhile. For me, he says, to live as Christ. And when he wrote that, he, there must have been a note of triumph, you know, uh, a sense of victory to have discovered that incredible truth. And Paul actually spent his life after his conversion to share that joyful discovery with others. Last week we talked about the Apostle Paul's adversity. He found himself in prison. And life was pretty rough, chained as he was 24-7 to a smelly guard. And yet he was remarkably poised and upbeat and even cheerful. And again, his secret to be found in that one simple phrase, to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. For Paul, his life was bound up with the living Lord. Jesus Christ was his bottom line and that one central point that, that made his life worth living. Whether he lived or he died, he was secure in the knowledge of Jesus' love. Because he found his life's purpose in Jesus, Paul had incredible motivation to carry on his work, the, the work that the Lord had given him to do. Paul was the ever-ready bunny of the Christian world. He just kept on going, inspired by he was, by the love and grace of Jesus Christ, and he knew that he was involved in a cause that had eternal significance and therefore worthy of his best effort, and the Apostle Paul gave it his all. He kept on seeking to please his Lord, even, when he was, even as, as he was beaten and chased from one town to another. The harsh realities of his life, the harsh reality of prison couldn't faze him. Paul's entire life was a testimony to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the bottom line of his life, 
the reference point that gave his life meaning and purpose. It gave his life a coherence and a focus that sustained him even in the toughest times. Jesus was his life definition. There is incredible power in a God-given, God-directed, purpose-driven life. It changes our whole attitude and outlook in our living and in our dying. And deep down inside, we all want to give ourselves to a cause bigger than ourselves and our own self-interest. We all long for a life of purpose and meaning and to be involved in a cause worthy enough to live for and to die for. Some years ago, uh, there was a news headline uh, told of 300 whales which suddenly died. And the whales were pursuing sardines and found themselves marooned in the bay. And a reporter commented, the small fish lured the sea giants to their death. They came to their violent demise by chasing small ends by prostituting vast powers for insignificant goals. Wow, there was a lot of life insight there from that, that episode. A great purpose keeps us from chasing small ends. We've got bigger fish to fry. We are meant for greatness, for great things, and yet so much of our life pursuing stuff that doesn't matter in the end. Ultimately, now as you leave here today, I want to encourage you to honestly reflect on how you would fill in the blank. For me to live is, and I know the first thing that's going to come to your mind because you're sitting in church, is to say, for me to live is Christ. And as you know, that's kind of a joke among Sunday school teachers for the correct answer to any question is always Jesus, Right? But I think you have to be honest about yourself. What is it that's get, that gets you up in the morning? What is, it, what is your life's focus? What are you holding on to? What stands at the center of your life and gives everything else its meaning and direction? Is Christ standing at the center of your life truly? Is he the one in whom you live and move and have your being? Do you place your ultimate hope in him? Or is it in something or someone else? Are there some idols in your life that need to be dethroned? If Jesus Christ is not at the center of your life, put him there because everything else is bound to disappoint. And you'll end up feeling like the writer of Ecclesiastes that you're just chasing the wind. It's all it is. It's just a chasing of the wind. You die and you disappear into the void. If Christ gives purpose and overall direction to your life, then all the other things in your life that bring you joy can be seen in proper balance. They'll be seen in the right way and used appropriately. If Christ is at the center, then all the other things you like to do and all your pleasures and the people in your life and so on, uh, they're, they're seen in the right balance, right? Christ gives, as, as somebody was saying to me the other day, uh, Christ brings equilibrium to our life. But if Christ is not at the center, then, then everything is in disarray. And we begin to worship things we ought not to worship. 
And we set up idols that are not going to serve us well. Seek first the kingdom of God, says Jesus, and all these other things will be added unto you. Everything else will fall into proper place and given proper perspective. I want to, uh, to close my, my sermon by reading from a letter that a father wrote to his son who was graduating from school and embarking upon a new career. And Actually, there's a lot of wisdom in this. I wish I had written this to my son, to my daughter, my sons. Dear son, I sincerely wish you will have the experience of thinking up a new idea, planning it, organizing it, following it to completion, and having to be magnificently successful. I also hope you'll go through the same process and have something bomb out. I wish you could know how it feels to run with all your heart and lose horribly. There is much to be learned from failure. I wish you could achieve some great good for mankind, but have nobody know about it except you. I wish you could find something so worthwhile that you deem it worthy of the best of your life. I hope you become frustrated and challenged enough to begin to push back barriers of your personal limitations. I hope you make a stupid mistake and get caught red-handed and are big enough to say those magic words, I was wrong. I wish for you a magnificent obsession that will give you reason for living and purpose and direction in life. I wish for you a magnificent obsession. And that captures so well my wish for my family and my friends and all those I love and for you in the congregation and for the folks out in the community that you will discover something so magnificent and so wonderful that you will deem it worthy of the best of your life. Something that will give you a reason to get up in the morning and to live your days with purpose and direction and power and bring you life's greatest satisfaction and deepest joy. And I pray that you will discover, if you have not already, a personal relationship with God and Jesus Christ and that you will be able to say with Paul in all sincerity, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. A magnificent obsession indeed. May you know him as Lord and friend. May he shape your life. May he inform all your decision making. May He motivate you and inspire you and fill you with hope and joy as you pursue His calling in your life. And may you find Him to be a solid rock in times of adversity. To Him be the glory. Amen.